what do Peter's words say to us this morning? Let me just start with an image that struck me during the week as I uh, watched uh, highlights of Glastonbury. And uh, as I was watching the, the Rolling Stones playing, there was a bit towards the end of the Rolling Stones set where Mick Jagger was stood right at the front, lead singer of the Rolling Stones, in front of I don't know how many tens of thousands of people. And, and the crowd were going wild. They'd, they'd done a good, good gig. And, and the crowd were really appreciating it. And I just saw this, this image of Mick Jagger kind of stood there with his arms out like this, kind of just receiving the adulation. He was just lapping it in. He was loving it. He was just enjoying that moment of approval by the crowd. And at the same time, you could see people's faces just totally into it, completely wrapped by the performance that they'd just seen. It was a brilliant spectacle. That might not be your cup of tea. But actually, whatever might be your cup of tea, we we all like a good spectacle. We all like to be able to kind of connect with different things that, that just help us to maybe just feel good or maybe feel safe. But actually, we love a good spectacle. There's something in us that loves a good spectacle. I'm looking forward to the Wimbledon final this afternoon for my sins. And I hope that Andy Murray does him quick, because I've got to go out at half past six. And so let's be praying for a good three-setter. But anyway, that's beside the point. I love a good spectacle too. And I hope that this afternoon is just a great event, that, that actually whatever happens, that it'll be a great event. We like a spectacle. And actually we like to be able to identify with people and sometimes put them on a pedestal and say, whoa, they're amazing. They're incredible. We so like to put people almost on a pedestal that makes them superhuman. And particularly in our culture, I think we we have got quite a big kind of culture of celebrity that, that kind of really loves to look at people and think, whoa, you're good. You must be superhuman. And true to our human nature, that sometimes means that we forget that actually God needs to be on the pedestal. That actually it's fine to love these things and really enjoy them and just appreciate everything about them and, and, and enjoy the kind of the atmosphere and all that's going on. But never to put a person on a pedestal where God should be. As we see a spectacle of a man being healed... The people's reaction is to go running to Peter and John. Whoa! You are so cool! How did you manage that? Is the kind of tone of what's going on there. They're rushing to them. And they're saying, well, how did that happen? There must be something about you that is amazing. I wonder if we'd been in the temple that day, 
And we'd seen that healing. What would our reaction have been? Would we have gone to those that had apparently been involved in it and kind of just be saying, you are the people? Or would our first reaction be, God, you are incredible. That can only be you that did that. I wonder what our reaction would have been. I wonder today how alert are we to seeing God at work. As we see things happen in our lives, in other people's lives, as we hear stories from other people, how alert are we to seeing God at work? Or are we tempted just to say, well, actually, yeah, he's, he's just such a good bloke. Well, she is an amazing woman. And I just, yeah, that's a, that's a very, very cool thing that's going on there. Do we sometimes forget to spot God at work? Peter was wise to this as the crowd came to him. And he could sense that that kind of moment where people were coming and looking at him and saying, wow, you're amazing. And he got wise to that. And he spoke some incredible words that we've just read. But before we get there, quick game of guess who, okay? Now, don't spoil it by shouting the answer out. But as you think you've got the answer, just give me a a kind of very British wave, you know, sort of reserved thing like that. Or you can stick your hand up and wave, don't mind. But I want to just read some facts about somebody and see if you can work out who this person is. This person is Canadian-born. They are a self-confessed Anglophile. He is married to an English woman. So it's a bloke. Okay, got that. He's got a master's in economics from Oxford University. He's described by some as charming and well turned out. Others, we've got a couple, others think he's a bit of a George Clooney lookalike. He worked for Goldman Sachs Bank for about 10, 12 years. He worked in London and Tokyo in New York and Toronto. Then he moved to a senior government job in the Canadian Finance Department, finishing as Governor of the Bank of Canada. And then last Monday, he started as Governor of the Bank of England. His name? Carney. Mark Carney. Very good. There was a kind of a a rippling amongst you, a few of you kind of thinking, yeah, I think I know who he's talking about. I read that kind of description this week of Mark Carney, the new governor of the Bank of England. A pretty important job to do in our country. And there, as I read that kind of report about Mark Carney and his starting this new job, they're kind of setting out his credentials, saying this is a smart operator. He's got academic ability. He's got business ability. He's got experience in government. He is going to be a good man. That's what we hope anyway. 
But his credentials were being set out so that we might be able to, to have a sense of, yeah, trustworthy bloke, like the look of him. As Peter was wise to the approach of the Jews, he wanted to point the attention away from himself. He wanted to point the attention actually away from the healed man. And he points the attention towards Jesus. And in this little passage here, he actually sets out Jesus' credentials. Sets out who Jesus is. So that those that saw that miracle can understand and come to know the saviour of the world. See, his, the credentials aren't just set out here to give information or even to give reassurance, although both of those things are probably helpful. But actually, they're there to urge his listeners into relationship with Jesus. And that's not because he can do amazing things, though he can but because he is God and he died for them and he invites them to turn to him same as he died for you and me and he invites us to walk with him I gave this, this, uh, this sermon the title of witness because perhaps for you today if you're already a follower of Jesus, maybe what, what you need to take from this is some of these credentials so that you might go back out into the world with a renewed confidence in who Jesus is. So that as you work and are at leisure, as you're at home with family and out with friends, this Jesus, you will be confident of. And you will have a greater sense of who it is that you follow. Maybe you're not sure about who this Jesus is and maybe today this will help you to just draw a little bit closer to a relationship with him. So let's have a look at the anointed three things. I've got three little bits out of this passage that, that maybe give us something of Jesus' credentials this morning. First of all, we see that Jesus is the author of life. We see, secondly, that Jesus is the appointed Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And thirdly, that Jesus is the prophet like Moses that Peter describes here and refers to. So let's look first of all at Jesus, the author of life, in verses 13 to 16. Actually, those verses start with some pretty harsh things. If you look at it, there are lots of quite accusing, fingery sort of, you did a whole bunch of stuff. Look at it for a second. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him. You disowned the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. As Peter speaks to his audience, they're going to be thinking, 
okay, that sounds a bit serious, that we did that. But it draws his listeners right in. This isn't some kind of academic, ethereal thing. This is about them. They put Jesus to death. The servant of the God of Abraham and Isaac. Let's not forget that Peter is addressing a crowd of people gathered in the temple in Jerusalem. A crowd of Jewish people whose heritage and faith is in the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The God of the history of their nations. And here, Peter is drawing attention to who this person is. See, he's not just a servant, as it says in verse 13. But actually, he's the holy and righteous one. Words that that would immediately have resonated with the Jews as words that refer to God, the holy and the righteous one. And then, the author of life. You killed the author of life in place of a murderer. You chose a murderer over the author of life, he's saying. But get this, verse 15, right in the middle there. But God raised him from the dead. This Jesus was no ordinary man. Many of these people might well have seen him. Many of these people may well have watched him die on the cross. This Jesus was no ordinary man. We've already seen in the book of Acts how Jesus was glorified. He was raised from the dead. He appeared to many in his resurrection body, a physical reality that he had risen from the dead and had conquered death. And he ascended into heaven before their very eyes. Whereas we said a few weeks ago, he is alive and well and interceding for us in perfection for eternity, waiting for his return. That's what glorified means, that he conquered death, that he rose from the dead, and he's ascended into heaven, and he has begun the rest of eternity, waiting for those who follow him to join with him. And this author of life is still active. We see it in this passage because actually refers to the healing of the man that was done in the name and authority of Jesus. A man whose life was, was impoverished, reduced to begging at a gate. Jesus, the author of life, restored that man. Brought him wholeness in his physical body that he might join with others and become a new part of society. All of that because of the name of Jesus, the authority of his name. 
And we have a really privileged position today because we can see more about this author of life, truth. If we look in Colossians, if we look in John chapter 1, let's look in Colossians very quickly, if, uh, if we can. If anyone gets uh, Colossians chapter 1 in the Pew Bibles, give us a shout out of a page number. 1183? There we go, 1183 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, and just a few uh, verses from verse 15. Talking about the author of life, Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created. Things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him... All things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the author of life. He's been brought to life by his Father and returned to heaven exalted. And his life continues to influence in the way that he touched that young man's life. Or probably quite an old man, actually, 42 in those days, was probably knocking on a little bit, I'm frightened to say. But that's not them. We're not them. But he is the author of life, and Peter wants his hearers to hear that. That even though they tried to kill him, they couldn't. Because he was above all and was restored to life by his father. Having then drawn the crowd into the story of Jesus, and I've just shut my Bible and lost my place. Hang on a minute. There we go, we're back. Having drawn the crowd in actually made them very much involved in what was going on. And into the story of Jesus, this author of life, the source of healing of this man, Peter continues to set out Jesus' credentials, pointing him to the, being the Messiah, the one that the Jews had been expecting for thousands of years. The Jews had heard the prophets whose words they would read in their scriptures, expecting God's anointed one. And here, verse 18, we see Peter explain that he is the Christ. That word, the Christ, also translated as the Messiah. 
the anointed one of God. Those words would have rung true to many of those who heard them. And Peter points firmly that Jesus is the Messiah. It's kind of funny in that second little section. It's almost like Peter begins to let them off the hook in verse 17. I know, brothers, that you acted in ignorance. But actually they knew that the Messiah was one who would suffer. Do you remember those words we read in Isaiah chapter 53 just now? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. The Messiah was going to suffer. And the Jews would have known that. Pierced for our transgressions. And so as we see Jesus, as they saw Jesus, they would have been pointed towards their own guilt, their own actions that Peter had just pointed out to them, that you had a hand in killing this man, who is God. And yet he took upon himself the iniquity of us all. So Peter, on the one hand, kind of seems to be suggesting, well, you know, you didn't know about it, but then, at the same time, he says, but you need to recognise what you did, but what Christ has done for you. And so he dives into verse 19. This Messiah, this Christ would suffer. So, verse 19, repent then. And turn to God so that your sins may be wiped. Peter gives three good reasons there why they should turn and repent. As if having heard what they'd done to Jesus wasn't enough. But he says, first of all, your sin might be blotted out, wiped out, made clean. Reminiscent of Psalm 51 where David, having committed adultery with Bathsheba, comes and asks that his transgressions might be blotted out and made clean. Again, concepts and images that the Jews would have understood. Repent that your sins might be blotted out. Secondly, that they might know refreshing. I wonder if there's been a time where you've carried something where you've desperately wanted somebody's forgiveness and for ages they haven't been willing to give it and then one day they say I forgive you it's okay how does that feel if that's not refreshing if there's not a sense of relief and release as you're forgiven of falling out with somebody. That's what Peter's talking about here, that they might know, refreshing, that they might come into relationship with the living God. And then thirdly, Peter says, repent so that you can look forward to the return of Jesus without fear and you can be a part of the restoration of the whole world. 
that is yet to come. When all things will be made new, as John says in Revelation. So Jesus, the author of creation, Jesus, the anointed Messiah, Peter shows that they've been complicit in Jesus' death and that mercy is offered, not because they've earned it, but because God has offered it, just as he does for you and me. We don't have to do anything. We cannot do anything to earn God's favour except turn and repent and ask Jesus to forgive us and restore us and then follow him. Jesus finishes off the job, uh, Peter, sorry, finishes off the job of setting out Jesus' credentials. He wants to make sure that what's gone on with this healing isn't seen as some kind of a freak show, some kind of a, a spectacle that's just there to draw a crowd. And it's not just a flash in the pan, just a one-off, just to wow a few people. But it's part of the enduring action of God in our world. And Peter anchors what he says very much again in what the Jews would have understood. The great figures of what we now know as the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures as they would have known and loved them. And he anchors who Jesus was in the Old Testament, in the prophets who spoke of him. And so the third thing that kind of gives us some credentials of Jesus after Jesus, the author of life, Jesus, the appointed Messiah, is that Jesus is the prophet like Moses in that passage that he quotes from Deuteronomy 18. And again, he challenges his hearers. Pretty big challenge. Listen to everything he tells you, verse 22. Peter and the apostles have been charged by Jesus to continue what Jesus had begun, just as we are challenged to continue what Jesus had begun. Listen to everything he tells you. Listen to what Jesus has said in Scripture. Otherwise, verse 23, there's a stark warning. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. That must have been quite shocking for the Jews who just assumed, well, you know, I'm one of the sons of Abraham. I'm one of the daughters of Abraham. Therefore, I'm sorted. I'm kushti. I'm good. But here... Unless you listen to Jesus, you will be completely cut off. That's quite striking. And it's quite striking for us too. Unless we listen to Jesus, we will be cut off. 
don't matter how nice we are, how good we try to be, unless we listen to Jesus, the ultimate speaker of God's word, the ultimate prophet above all prophets, because he is God. He needs to be listened to. And a beautiful thing here is that that these listeners and us, we are invited to be a part of this. Right in this passage, it's, it's the Jews that are being invited to be included. Right at the end there, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you, fellow Jews. Verse 17 and verse 11. No, not verse 11, verse 12. Men of Israel, brothers. He's speaking to those fellow Jews and saying, you're invited. Will you respond? But actually, verse 26 leaves it open so that in chapter 10 of Acts, we see that this is opened up to the Gentiles too, to those like us, not born Jews. And so we can hear this invitation for us too. Jesus wasn't simply a good man for us to know facts about. He wasn't simply a prophet and a teacher, somebody who gave lots of sage advice. He's the author of life. He's the Messiah. He's the one that the Father used to speak through and he wants us to know him and to live and act on his authority. He wants us to act in his name. I wonder, as you read those words, repent and turn to God. wonder if there's an area of your life today that you need to surrender into God's hands. An area of your life that you've kept. You're kind of doing everything else pretty good, but I'm not giving God that. Or maybe actually you feel that life is a complete mess and you need to give it to God. Please see hope in this passage. You can't get much worse than killing the Son of God. So whatever you have done, there is mercy offered in this passage that Jesus died for you. So come, surrender whatever it might be that you need to give in your life. Perhaps it is the whole of your life, maybe for the first time. Or maybe today, you do just need to regain confidence in who Jesus is. You need to regain a sense of of the credentials that he has as you go about your business this week. What I'd like us to do is to take enough time this morning just to reread the passage to yourself. 
And I want to ask God just to help you to respond in the way that he needs you to. And that might simply be just a wholehearted gratitude for the goodness of God, for the way that you see him at work. Or it may be that you need to turn wholeheartedly to God this morning.